I think the biggest learning for me has been we can't solve every problem in one year, but every step that we're taking as Indigenous peoples to create space and be in place and have a voice is a step in the right direction. From the time that I started three years ago, there's been a lot of shifting. There's a hunger and a yearning for this other way of being in the learning spaces, but also being in the world. And teachers, they really want to be doing that through Indigenous ways of being, knowing and doing, and really wanting to do the work. And there's some people who don't, and that these paradigms challenge them, and they threaten them, and they resist them. A lot of it has been people coming to us and asking and wanting to do the decolonial work as settlers, but also as people who want to, to bring a softness and an openness and a holistic approach to their spaces too. Welcome to Walking in Relation, Indigenous Pathways Through Education. Within Indigenous communities, education has always been a community role and responsibility. Our interconnectedness and relationship to each other, to the land, to the waterways, the human, and the more than human, is what makes Indigenous communities whole. This gives us a holistic framework of how education could be if we shifted our gaze away from the Western colonial worldview. This concept of being together as one, learning from each other, is core to the understanding of Indigenous worldview. By pausing, listening, and reflecting on our surroundings, we will be able to start to understand how much colonialism has taken away from all of us, not just Indigenous people. We are inviting you to sit with us as we speak to Indigenous educators as they share their understandings and perspectives about education. I'm inviting you to open up your heart and your mind to leave stereotypes and judgments at the door. This work is asking you to be a witness and a participant in the hopes that we can shift your understandings of what education could be. Uh, Carolyn Roberts, my heart is full and so thankful to be here today for our next episode talking to some strong Indigenous women's voices today. We have two Indigenous educators joining us and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'm going to pass it over to Ramona first. Ramona Elk Indigenous Cause. I'm super honored to be here with you today. I was just looking out my window on this beautiful land. Katsi and Kwantlen people who are the caretakers of these lands and waters and have, have made me feel at home here for the last 21 years in this building. And I get to look out on the grandfather, English name Golden Ears, protect us and to teach us. Um, I'm Anishinaabe Metis on my mom's side and um, I'm Celtic and Germanic from my, my dad's side and I'm really happy to be here with you today. Mm, hi Jeff, thanks Ramona. I'm going to pass it over to Michelle. Hi, my name is Michelle Andrew. I'm an Aboriginal support worker at Garibaldi. I have only been in the high schools for a year. Um, I am Métis. My experience has unfortunately been hidden, so I did not find out my ancestry until I was in my mid-20s when my grandmother passed. Um, and 
when that happened, I, I will have been seeking ever since and want to honor, I believe everybody should be proud of their ancestry. Um, and I'm really grateful to be in a space where I can connect with people like Ramona and her EA and a small group of allies within the school. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Tisania, would you like to introduce yourself? Ah, uh, yeah. My name is Tisania, uh, and I am Tsalkpayak. Um, my ancestral territory is the Chilok River Valley. Um, and through the Indian Act, I'm a member of Skokale First Nation. Um, I just recently found out that I'm and now starting to include in my uh, grounding myself. I just recently found out that my name is actually a place name in the Han language in Yukon. Um, I, yeah, I had no idea. Um, my mom had found my name in a National Geographic and I have spent my entire life looking for it. <laughs> and yeah, it's a lake and it carries some oral histories with it. And um, from, from my gathering, it's Anlia. And which is very similar to what my name would be in Hokamela, which is Alia. Um, but yeah, so it's, that's a really interesting piece for me because it's just another step that I've taken in, in grounding who I am. And, and I don't have ancestral connections to Indigenous peoples in the Yukon, but now I, I have to carry the responsibility of, of this place. So um, that's going to be a new learning journey for me moving forward. That's amazing. Thanks yeah. for sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, can you also tell me where you're working right now and what, what your role is? Um, I am a Indigenous Enhancement teacher in the Tolox School District. I work at Sardis Secondary School part-time, and then I also work at our District Learning Services um, Department um, as a district um, resource teacher. So I have two kind of hats that I wear. One is a site-based, um, so I oversee 165 self-identified Indigenous students. Wow, nice. <laughs> yeah, and then at the district level, I work more on curriculum and um, classroom teaching and co-teaching, so. So yeah, with you being in education and in the places that you have been doing the work that you're doing, I'm wondering, I'm curious, um, what are the shifts and the changes that have been happening within your spaces towards Indigenous education, towards our students? You're you can go first if you want. <laughs> Whoever would like to answer. I think I've seen small shifts. Um, I think moving to Garibaldi uh, High School and becoming connected with Ramona has... I, speaking for myself, I feel like our voices become a little bit louder. Well, we're a lot louder, but I'm not sure who's listening quite yet. We do have, Ramona and I have had some very complicated conversations happening within the school. And um, there's been a bit of shift in that, but there's so much more work to be done. Yeah, I've been here for 21 years. In this school, I was I stepped out for a couple of different assignments over the years, but for the most part, I've been here in this building. And I would say the last 
five or six years, there's been a, a shift. Um, there's been a really big shift when I came back into the classroom for 15 of the 21, I was a support teacher and uh, ran the, the support department. And so when I did my grad diploma through with the Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish Nations from 2017 to 2019, and then the, the masters after that, um, I went back into the classroom in 2018 and took on um, the English First Peoples, which the name has to change, uh, the first English First Peoples 11 and 12, and the BC First Peoples Studies. And from the time that we came back in here, we made our presence known pretty much from the beginning. We held a feast for Katsi elders, pretty much right away started bringing culture and ceremony into the space. But I've noticed more lately that people are in the last, say, three or so years, that people are on board with things like book clubs. And um, we've had the wonderful Jessica Knott leading, um, leading pro-D opportunities and after-school opportunities. And so people are there. I really feel like there's a hunger and a yearning for this other way of being in the learning spaces, but also being in the world. And teachers... I feel like especially some of the younger teachers, they really want to be better and to make spaces safer for kids. And, you know, doing that through Indigenous ways of being, knowing and doing and really wanting to do the work. And there's some people who don't and that these paradigms challenge them and they threaten them and, um, and they resist them. But I've seen from the time that I started three years ago, four years ago, in this space behind me, um, in this room, there's been a lot of shifting. A lot of it has been sort of us, you know, dragging them, kicking and screaming. But um, a lot of it has also been people coming to us and, and asking and wanting to do the decolonial work as settlers, but also you know, as people who want to um, to bring a softness and a and an openness and a holistic approach to their spaces too. I think when I first started teaching, we still practiced very similar methods um, that I experienced as a student. But since the uh, Tecumlips announcement, there has been like overdrive almost like I've seen the turbo kick in pushing for indigenous content in in what they know it to be so we are still working on the topic of conversation where indigenization doesn't happen without decolonization and having to really push educators to um take on this work on a life level and not just in the classroom you can't just do it in the classroom and then walk away from it it's not something that it's something that has to exist in your whole life so mm-hmm. um i've seen a lot of work being done in the past year um, including my position at the district level um, we haven't had teachers at the district level in indigenous ed and then since that announcement the senior um, administration and the executive have been pushing and funding for us so we started at, there's three of us, we started at 40% this year. And then next year they offered um, all three of us uh, full time if we want it. That to me communicates, in a colonial way, communicates that they want us. Because they're putting money to it. Yeah. Um, and that's how they're communicating to us that what we're doing is important. 
um, that's been a big game this year in terms of them just showing that what we're doing is, is meaningful work. So then that makes me curious about what do you see as the most critical pieces of your work and the work that you're doing? Connecting with the students. Yeah. Being there for students, letting students know, like Ramona and I are probably two of the most trusted people in our building at the moment. And I mean, that's, I don't usually say something like that about myself, but I witness it every day for non-Indigenous and Indigenous children. And it's because we are real people. Mm -hmm. We're non-judgmental, welcoming, understanding. Uh, we don't try and fit you into one whatever box. Yeah, relationships and creating safe, safe, courageous spaces for students is probably the, the most critical piece. So... Um, I know that you guys know it, but the people who are listening, so I'm also a PhD student just started. Um, and so part of my, part of my inquiry is creating spaces of honoring for all beings. So that becomes a huge, huge, important piece, like making space and giving place for people's voice and lifting up and honoring the youth to know that they're teachers too. And that all people who enter this space are treated like they're teachers, where we don't have this demarcation of roles and stuff in our space. It's a very equal space. It's community. We don't. I don't call it a classroom. I call it a learning community. And I, I don't say it's my room. I say it's our room. So we we try to create space that is um, that's home and family, and um, and critical in bringing in. Indigenous ways of being, knowing, and doing, and ceremony, and you can see the drums behind me, and the drumming is a key, key piece, and making, and we do ceremony in here. We smudge, we talk about witnessing, we talk about uh, um, some of the practices that, that are familiar to me in my particular culture, um, because I can't really speak to um, the ways that folks do things here because I, I don't really know. I'm not super familiar. Um, so I don't feel comfortable to take that kind of work on, but we bring in what we can. We have food. That's super critical. Michelle's always awesome about cruising in during flex. Like we have a flex block between first block and second block and at lunchtime and this space is open for everybody in flex. Whereas there's lots of places that have closed doors, this place is open for lunch, and we get all kinds of we get all kinds of kids in here, and it's it's awesome. Um, but I think the most critical piece is a place for all people's voices and um, and place for ceremony, community, and culture, and not being afraid to smudge in here. <laughs> we do it all the time. <laughs> so. For me, the most important piece is building that understanding with teachers because what's going to be a benefit for Indigenous students is if they see themselves mm -hmm. in every single space and not just my classroom. Yeah. Um, so I work really, really hard. I kind of take a step back from the students and I push the co-collaboration with teachers because that's what's going to be impactful for Indigenous students. They're in my room 24 seven, can't get them out because they don't see themselves in the other spaces. Mm -hmm. So instead of getting students to adapt and be flexible and support them, we need to make 
teachers hold themselves accountable and take on those roles and responsibilities to create safe spaces for Indigenous students. And that goes beyond, um, it goes well beyond a piece of art on a wall. The way that you hold yourself and the way that you communicate with Indigenous students is like the first step. So that's my, I think my biggest, because this is a new role for me at, at Sardis Secondary, and that's the biggest thing for me is pushing that understanding with the adults in the building, because they're mm-hmm. the ones that hold the power. They're the ones that establish the cultures and environments. So they have to be cognizant of that. Any teacher has to be aware of the power that they carry, whether they want that or not. Tell me about some of the things in your roles, in your different roles, that fill your heart with happiness, as Monique Graysmith would say. Yes. So the biggest thing for me, this because I've worked at the elementary level for a long time, and now this is my first kind of exploration of the high school level and older kids that are turning into adults. The biggest thing for me has been the students' confidence in me as a support system for them. Um, once I got to know our the Indigenous students at my school and they started coming to me and sharing like meaningful life steps for them or um, something important that happened in their community over the weekend or something that they had participated in in terms of ceremony, when they started sharing that with me, that was the biggest moment where I was like, oh, these kids see me as a support system. These kids see mm. me as a safe space for them. And that filled my heart and made me, it outweighed all of the negative things. Because mm. at the end of the day, if I need a safe space, I go to them. I go find them. And it's that kind of like intergenerational piece where these kiddos are teaching me as much as I'm teaching them. And um, especially about culture, because I grew up off reserve and displaced and they're sharing with me. I have a lot of kids from my my reserve and they're I just like I feel like one of the gang when I'm there. That relationship piece that has been the most fulfilling. Yeah, I don't even that it's an intangible connection relationship bringing in the beautiful spirits and enlivening this space and then sort of carrying it out into the rest of the building. Um, We've got some really good groups this year, just in terms of like how courageous they are and they just step into, you know, usually youth or kind of feel weird or whatever about drumming and stuff. And we've had groups this year that are just like, yeah, bring it on, let's do it. And so we've gone and we've taken, um, we've got a powwow drum as well. And so we've taken the powwow drum out into the foyer and and drummed our, our, you know, our hearts out. And so they bring this, they bring this joy in this, um, I don't know, they just enliven the space and they teach, they're such, I learned so much from them. They just really, really bless my life with, with all of these things that I need to be a better human. They just make, they just make me a better human. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. They just there's just moments that I'm in the, in the space with them, and we're just kind of doing what we do. And I have conversations with them about the work or their lives or the things that they're doing. And I just I'm just like wow, like I'm really I feel really blessed to be included in their lives and to be you know like they they get people their families to do parent teacher interviews even though if they don't want to they just I want you to meet my mom and I'm just like oh you're including me in your family 
it's just like it's just beautiful to be to be included and to be part of their part of their lives because they're just you know to the person like the most amazing remarkable humans yeah can you just repeat the question for me please i get lost in ramona (laughs) (laughs) me too (laughs) a lot of what ramona has said is so true um Every single day I come to this school for the kids. I don't come here for a paycheck. I don't come here for a pat on the back. Um, Us being in this school and accepting them the way that they are. I've had indigenous students, best friends say, I wish I was indigenous. So that, that stuff, I will cry the whole time, just so you know, I cry all the time, so <laughs> I have passion. So what are those What are those places that, as Indigenous educators, that you see your role is critical in helping our students in the, in the system that um, come up against challenges within the system? So I think the biggest, um, the biggest challenge for me right now in my role is the overlap that has been, this is a systemic overlap um, slash attachment that has been created. So within my role, um, I am a Indigenous enhancement teacher for a piece of my job. And then I'm a learning assistance teacher for the other piece of my job. And that historically, may have worked because of course indigenous students need learning assistance Mm -hmm. but that makes my job two full-time jobs Mm -hmm. um, because learning assistance comes with ieps it comes with case management it comes with enrolling student classes um i am enrolled three out of four blocks a day like in my classroom um teaching learning assistance and Indigenous students are placed in those learning assistance classes, but that's when the equity conversation happens. So my biggest conversation this year because of that system has been Indigenous students deserve, require, need, I would say deserve. They deserve to have an Indigenous enhancement teacher and a learning assistance teacher if they so need one. It's not equitable for me to be both. Just because I'm Indigenous does not mean that I am giving them the full two people that equitably they deserve. We need learning assistance teachers. They, we don't have enough learning assistance teachers to support, to support all of the needs within the school, for sure. It's one to 165. That makes it really, really hard to do the meaningful work because I feel tied up with IEPs and case management and putting out fires here, there, and everywhere um, in order, and then can't get out to do that meaningful code collab or that planning, that implementation with teachers, um, which is a big portion of the enhancement job is supporting teachers in this work. Um, So those are things that we're navigating as a district to kind of rework and shift and change takes time, but that's hard. And then the other piece is um, systematically, so I see... Within the public school system, in high school, there are departments. There's the social department, the English department, the student services department, um, et cetera, et cetera. I see Indigenous education as a department. 
so when I came in, I had a conversation with my admin and they were more than happy to have this conversation where I said, this is a department and, and if this is a department, we need a department head and I'm the department head because I'm the only teacher in the department currently. So they were more than happy for me to be a department head. They had already allocated all of the funds for department heads. So I'm not paid as department head. I, cause I wanted more autonomy and more authority to make decisions as a department on a department level um and so as i've been navigating that we're planning for next year and you're able to propose courses within your department that potentially might make it into the timetable for the next year um i said i built a course for contemporary indigenous studies or i would love to teach english first peoples because it's currently not being taught at our site um and I have one non-enrolling block where I could do that. I want a content course um, and I want to propose that. Um, it came back that I had to go, depending on what the course was, English First Peoples, I had to go to the English department to get permission or to run it by them um, because that department gets first dibs on that course. Um, and for contemporary indigenous studies, I had to go to the socials department. So I had to... I was delegated to go and get permission from another department to make a decision for my own department. Um, and it was a very, very clear indication that systemically indigenous peoples cannot make decisions for themselves. Right. They have to get permission. And so that was a really hard, um, I'm still pushing that conversation. And there are a lot of entrenched systems that are beyond the people in the building currently. It's beyond mm -hmm. them. It is not the people in the building. It is, the system that has been established since high schools became a thing. Yeah. And it's tradition and it's, it's systems. So that's, that one's really hard. And um, now, now that the grad requirements came out, I am fighting to be able to teach one of those courses and I don't necessarily <laughs> get first dibs. <laughs> and, like, isn't that like that, that space of, okay, so we need Indigenous educators to teach these courses, and then here's an Indigenous educator fighting to teach the course and not getting their voice heard. Like, what the heck? Yeah. <sighs> I believe for myself, um, because I, I'm not a teacher, I can remove myself from that role. I, I try to understand everyone has a story, and everyone is coming from some sense of trauma. I know a lot of people like to think it's just the indigenous people that have trauma, but it's because people don't like to admit that there's a whole lot. And I think I, I try to dig a little deeper into their story and know who they are before I try and fix them or tr try to help them in any way. Just because we're on one way of our journey doesn't mean we can't get back on track and instilling that into the children i try to give that and teach from that i there's not enough time in this short time frame to talk about the how critical it is for us being in this space to do what we do to protect indigenous kids and and lift up and support indigenous kids but also um, all, all children. It's the advocacy piece because people just don't think. Adults don't think about, well, maybe your kid's not doing well because they're hungry or, you know, they've been up all night 
with a sibling or, you know, all of those other pieces. And that in spite of what you think people are capable of doing and the behaviors that are shown to you, there's more to this human being beyond these behaviors and you need to give this kid a chance. And I've had to go toe to toe with administrators in the past for students who were on their way out. And I sat in a, in a district meeting for a kid who was on his last legs in this building to no fault of his own. And to say to the administrator, it, you can't, you can't move him on because we've done nothing for him. And knowing fully well that he's doing the best that he can given the circumstances that he's working in. And not just in his life, but in this building and the discrimination and the racism that he faced because people were, were putting that racism of low expectations on him and preventing him from being in spaces because he was a certain kind of kid. He was a behavior kid. And so they wouldn't allow him in IB art, for example, because he's a graffiti artist. Um, and so there's just like this constant erosion of spirit in this place, in the places where people think nobody's looking. You know, us being the advocates and the voice is probably the most critical in giving them place and space to be who they need to be and to encourage them to speak and um, to stand up and respect themselves for you know who they were born to be so that they can they can continue in their in their walk but it's um yeah i totally lost the question but i think <laughs> it's like <laughs> fighting no fighting. Uh, yeah absolutely and and i totally see that with with the supports that my 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 children have within their high school is that there's there's a couple key people that i can connect with and that what that's what we need as parents to know that we have amazing humans that will stand up to say nah that's not okay and also what carolyn what you were talking about with the parents we've had to also you know try and make people aware of the fact that it's the presentation of the space if they're a survivor if they've had their own trauma with school forget about it no wonder they don't come to meetings right because they don't feel comfortable in the building at least like if you're going to invite indigenous parents Take them into your office, and if you do, make sure you've got food, you've got tea, and you've got you've got this comfortable space where people can go. Like I know other people who have um, invited people to a Tim Hortons or whatever to have a coffee and a talk, which is way more comfortable for folks. It's just this; it's just not in their realm of experience, and so they don't they don't consider these things. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I always say to to administrators when they ask, "Well, what can you do?" Don't. Don't invite them in, you go to them. Mm-hmm. With knowing what we do and knowing the work that we do is, is um, not, uh, it's not easy. We know that. Um, what would you say to an Indigenous student wanting to step into this work? Because we know we need more. I'd say that your work is absolutely necessary and that what you do is important, but it's hard work and it's lonely work and it's a constant uphill battle that you're going to have to be, you know, people are going to be calling you to prove yourself that what you do is valuable. Happened today. (laughs) Happened today. But I didn't full send. 
I asked for a second opinion. I'm learning. Um, but it's really challenging. My whole career has been, you know, what I do is valuable, but we need more indigenous teachers, but we need to build community and we need to build spaces in our buildings that allow them to feel like what they do matters and not that they're crazy because they do whatever or that they put relationships first or they build community and community is important and they, they feel like, um, like Dwayne Donald talks about it as like almost like a psychotic split, right? When we don't walk in our ways and we don't honor our cultural teachings and share them and make spaces where those are things are possible. And the kids, the, the, this generation, they're over it and they want to see changes and they're willing to enact changes and they're frustrated that people can't get their shit together in the older generations to actually, you know, honor and see what needs to be done. And I think that, um, like the indigenous voices in these spaces are really those and earth honoring peoples from around the world are the only thing that's going to save us and the children, right? And we need to get kids on drums and off phones and we need to lift them up and bring their value forward so that they know that they're worth more than a like or a heart on their Instagram. And our, our ways that our elders taught us and our ancestors taught us, they knew, they knew how to help children learn how to be in the world without shaming them and humiliating them. And I'm over that in these spaces. I cannot, like we've been repairing kids. I've been repairing kids for 21 years. We need Indigenous teachers to hold the line. We need them to walk in their truth and not be afraid and to encourage settler people who want to do the work and take up the work and really and really um, allow them space to ask those questions and have those hard conversations and fuck up and fall over themselves and embrace them like we would the kids when they're trying to learn. It's, we, we just gotta, we gotta do it and we need them badly. So come on over, I'm happy to help. <laughs> yeah, staying true to your community and, and remembering that at the end, the work that you're doing is for them and for yeah. the kiddos that are coming up. Yeah. And if you're if you get lost on a tangent or fighting a fight that isn't necessarily a benefit to your people directly, then you can take a step back and reevaluate because at the end of the day, that's what we want. That's what we're working for. So go take that space. Go get in there, go stir that pot because it's needed. And we also have to get out there and show, show them that we have warriors and we have people that are here to take up the work um, and they don't control the game anymore. We do need them, but we also need them to be valued. So yeah. you can't come into a district and look around and be told this is how this is what we want to do, but then have show no value because the other districts within our province or some of the other districts are holding their Aboriginal people up high and it's noticeable. Mm -hmm. They're paying them right. They're giving them the hours they need. They're not spreading them across three schools when you're working in an elementary school. What sort of presence is that for kids who, they don't just need you one day. Yeah. <laughs> they need you every single day. At the end of the day, we're fighting within 
Audrey Lords were fighting with the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. But at the end of the day, we always have our people to go back to. We always have our parents and grandparents to go back to and, and our culture and our spirituality. I think the biggest learning for me has been we can't solve every problem in one year, but every step that we're taking as Indigenous peoples to create space and be in place and have a voice is a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then once we're done fighting for the day, resisting for the day, we can go home and make sure that we have what's in our heart and in our spirits and um, have that at home and then go back out again the next day. So Lila June talks about um, freedom dreaming. If you had the freedom to dream, if we didn't always have to talk back, what would, what would be the dream? I have a dream. Hmm? I talk about it all the time. If I won the lottery, I would, I would buy a plot of land and it would be it would be an indigenous school. It would be a school with the indigenous ways of knowing and it would be open to everyone. It, because I believe that there's so many people that wanna be living that way. They wanna be taught that way. They wanna be valued that way. Uh, it would be a very safe space. Mm -hmm. That would be my dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would, I dream into that too. And the other piece of it is, um, again, I'm looking outside, um, connection to the nations here. And learning the language of this place, it's always been, oh my God, Michelle, thanks. It's always been something that's been really on my spirit because I know that the land hears us. And I just want the I just want the land and the people to know how grateful I am that they've allowed me to make this my home, and to be part of this community. And um, and to and to be you know walking gratefully with the nations. If I'm dreaming into an indigenous future, I'm not looking at that mountain through these windows. I'm. I'm on the field, I'm at Golden Ears, I'm on the river, I'm putting salmon back in, I'm singing songs on the river to invite the ancestors home from the sea. I'm in a place where all children are seen and loved and lifted up and honored for all the gifts that they bring. And having elders connected too, so that the elders feel like they have a valued place in the work um, here too. Okay, one more thing, because we're we we've, we're we're close to the end here, um, and I want I want to hear um, I want I want to hear about the seeds that you plant for these little humans. What are those seeds that you plant for them to to move into being strong for themselves? Um, I try and plant the seeds of all of the seven grandfather teachings and to, um, 
to go back to those key questions that our elders would ask of us. Because I think of Elder Christian, late Elder Christian, asking about, you know, if, if you're not well and you're unbalanced, the elder, you go to the elder and they say, what are you dreaming? What do you dream for? And the questions, you know, of who am I, where do I come from, and where am I going? And I always tell them when they come in here on the first day, like, we're not doing essays in here. So if you want to do that on your time and you want me to look at it, that's totally fine. But I feel like my job, my calling is to help you find out who you are and separate yourself from the stories that other people told you about who you are. They are ever so much more than what people see. My job and our job in this space is to, is to show them how beautiful and how wonderful they are and show them that their, their gifts matter so that when they leave here, they know what, where they're going. And that if they happen to, you know, learn about something along the way, that's great. But in the meantime, it's really about putting them back together and helping and hoping that they're strong enough to step out of here with the confidence in what they were born to bring to the world. And, you know, if I can, if I can do that, if I can plant that seed and help them to see that they are, they are good, beautiful people, then that's that's what I have, I've accomplished. What I came here to do. I think also for me, planting the seed that you are not where you came from, meaning the sadness, the anger, the hurt, the trauma. You can overcome that. I I speak of my own story of breaking cycles and like sometimes when I share my story, kids are just like what? That's how you grew up? And I'm like, yes, that's how I grew up. But I, I didn't want to be my father. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I wanted to be better than that. Um, and I also talk about the struggles that it took me. I didn't, I wasn't perfect just because I chose to want to break cycles. It wasn't easy. It's hard work. I think a lot of these kids think their life is just set out, but we have to work hard. Um, to be the people we want to be. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's another key piece when we do, like we talk a lot about um, the impacts of colonialism and intergenerational trauma. And it's really important for me to them, for them to understand that we can sit in our discomfort of hearing the painful pieces of other people's stories and know that we come out them out the other side, many of us. Um, and we, we're not, a, you know, we're not, stapled to that destiny kids thinking that they're going to be living in this crisis for the rest of their lives and you know it, it, when we do you know to, when we stood look at indian horse or some of the other stories of survivors and it's like you know we don't have to let those people define who we are i'm a survivor and like i'm i'm here and we're here together you know i i'm the i'm the person who's who's writing my stories so they know that they know that there's people around them that that are th- are thriving and not just surviving. Yeah, and and one one of the other ladies said is that if if they don't see us, they can't be us. So you being there is important, so that they know that they can be that for others as well. 
Thank you so much, ladies. I sure do appreciate your time and um, everything that you've shared with us today along this journey. So my hands are raised for the amazing work and connections that you've been doing in the places and spaces you're in. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Carolyn. Yeah. Walking in Relation is hosted by Carolyn Roberts and is produced and edited by Calder Chevery. Each episode contains original music by Carolyn Roberts and Jody Prosnick, featuring Tilden Webb on piano, Jody Prosnick on stand-up bass, Ramona Elke on drum and vocals, and Dante on shakers. Musical engineering by Sheldon Zaharko and Monarch Studios. A huge special thanks this episode to Ramona Elke, Michelle Andrew, and to Sandia Van Rye for such beautiful conversations. Thank you so much for your insight and your knowledge and sharing with us today. And to Simon Fraser University's Indigenous Digital Media Grant, whose funding helped to support this project. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Take good care, everyone, and we hope that you'll come and listen again.